Good evening, listeners. It's December 3rd, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Nicole Hams from the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics, which is on my department, so I'm especially excited for this show. She is in Colin Johnson's lab, and she studies otoferlin, which is a protein required for hearing. Mutations in the gene sequence of otoferlin are linked to deafness. So um, thanks for joining us here, Nicole. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, I study otoferlin. Um, it's defects form a specific form of deafness called um, deafness neurosensory, sorry, deafness, auto, ne- deafness neurosensory autosomal recessive type of deafness. Um, It's called DFNB9. Excuse me. And like Lily was saying, um, its mutations um, cause non-syndromic deafness, which is only, um, the only issue is you are deaf. It's not associated with any other type of disorders. Um, And this protein is very, very large. So my approach to studying it um, is the use of single molecule biophysics, which is why I'm in the biochem biophysics department. So it's a nice fit. (laughs) Okay, so I want to know a little bit more about proteins and why they're important and what are they, a little bit more, if you can tell us. Absolutely. So um, proteins are the molecules in your body that allow you to function, essentially. If you think of, um, if you think of a car, for example, um, DNA would be the frame and your proteins would be the engine. You know, without them, the majority of the vehicle just wouldn't be functional. Um, in terms of studying them, um, I found this really cool webpage actually while I was kind of looking, looking around, doing my internet looking, um, and I found a, it talked about analogies about the diversity of proteins. And, you know, of course, you can imagine there are hundreds of thousands of proteins in your body. Um, so, for example, there's one protein called RAS, and it's analogous to a switchboard operator where it sits ready to push buttons and stretch cores to connect incoming calls to the correct recipients. Um, you have proteins like a kinases, which act as a switch, so their job is to turn other proteins on or off. Um, you, another example is G proteins. Um, they were described as a promiscuous dance partner. Um, <laughs> they take different forms based upon its dance, its uh, partner it's dancing with. Um, <clears throat> so we usually study proteins. One of the most common ways to study proteins is um, when you figure out it's underlying a, underlying a specific disease, and so you study it to find a cure. Um, that's what most scientists do. And then um, you also have those who study with proteins to learn to emulate it. Um, one of the things about proteins is they're very efficient catalysts. You know, they're able to rip molecules apart and put them back together all while hanging on to these unstable intermediates. And 
that's not something that can usually be done in a test tube. Uh, <clears throat> so. So I come from a little bit more of a abiotic geology background. So what would happen if there were many, many proteins that were dysfunctional? Um, well, it kind of depends on your definition of dysfunction. Um, and that, I say that because in the body we have um, a lot of chimeric proteins that may be isolated to one region of the cell, but when you chop it up and put it into a different region of the cell, it takes on a whole new function. Um, and there's also this crazy thing that um, where you have mutations that don't always cause dysfunction. Something they, sometimes they cause a gain of function. Um, one of those cases is a protein superoxide dismutase, which has um, implications in um, Lou Gehrig's disease, right? So it's kind of a, that's kind of a difficult question to answer, of like if, if everything didn't work. Yeah. It's like, well, we're kind of here because it doesn't work enough, but it works well enough, right? Because like obviously with a, your body, you don't want to be at homeostasis because you'll be dead. Like you want <laughs> some type of chemical imbalance so you can keep um, performing complex functions. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not really an easy question to answer. So the, the structure of these proteins really has a huge control on how functional or dysfunctional it'll be, which is why trying to understand these structures is pretty important. Oh, like. oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, um, of course, with proteins, there's also a uh, size. They'll they vary in size. Um, and that's kind of something that's interesting about the protein I study, which is otoferlin. Um, specifically, it has upwards of about 30 different mutations that should range from like frame shift to deletions to really stop codons um and any one of these mutations can lead to deafness which makes it really weird <laughs> yeah it's a very tricky protein it's like a minefield you're almost studying um so no. oh, oh, sorry. sorry with with hearing then otoferlin is absolutely required absolutely to be yes. able to hear anything yes so it's just it seems like it's one of these it's really important to know more about it oh yes yeah so how is it that you study this protein? Because proteins are so very small, and it seems like there would be a challenge of isolating just one protein when right. you have so many in a cell. Um, tell us a little bit about that process. Um, so in terms of protein purification, that's something that for most proteins, it's not too terribly difficult. Most protocols are standardized to do it. Um, however, when you get into proteins that are very, very large or very, very small or those that are even insoluble, you run into issues. So, like, if you think about the average size of a protein, you're looking at probably 40 kilodaltons. Um, and for folks who aren't familiar with that scale, you can think of it as, like, a one-bedroom apartment, you know, roughly a 1,000 square feet, right? But then my protein, otoferlin, is 230 kilodaltons. So you take that 1,000-square-foot one, one bedroom and then you compare that to, say, 6,000 square feet, which I think 5,000 is all you need to be considered living in a mansion. So, it, <laughs> so you have an estate at that point. Yes, that we year. have an estate. And then it's, it's um, made more difficult by the fact that it's insoluble. So you take that massive estate and you put it in the middle on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere. So not only do you have a massive house, it's very hard to get to. So very few people are going to be able to actually come and visit you. Same thing with Odoferlin. It, it's the environment that it's in. It's very hard to extract it from that environment in order to study it. Um, so one of the ways we got around that is that we used a form of microscopy called TERF, which stands for Total Internal Reflection Fluorescence. Um, 
And um, TURF is a specialized form of microscopy that um, it uses optical principles, um, specifically um, refraction and reflection of light, um, to restrict the excitation and detection of fluorophores to a specific region. Um, so your molecules, which are immobilized, can be resolved in a spati- spatial um, format, which is, is, makes them really convenient. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. So yeah. you mentioned earlier that you study single molecule yes. biophysics. So this form of microscopy allows you to visualize cells or proteins at the single, at the individual level? Yes. Um, so in terms of visualizing individual proteins, um, with TERF you have to immobilize everything. Um, be that a cell or an individual protein, uh, which actually is one of the very few cons of this technique is the fact that you do have to mobilize it. And, of course, taking something that operates in three dimensions, moving it down to two dimensions, it can have a, um, an effect on its overall function. Um, but besides that, once you, if you do find that narrowing it to two dimensions does not affect function, what you end up with is... Um, a technique with a very high signal-to-noise ratio. Um, so that basically means that you can see it with less, maybe, noise. With less the... background, absolutely. Okay. okay. Um, you also get minimum sample excitation. As I mentioned, um, it's important to immobilize your sample on the surface. But just because it's on the surface doesn't mean everything in the entire chamber is being, all the floor floors in the chamber are not being excited. Um, there's only, safe. um you have a chamber that's, from a molecule's perspective, say infinitely large, um, you only see things that are about 100 nanometers from the surface. So that's a very, very finite range um, from the perspective of, of a very small molecule. Um, and one benefit of that is, again, um, you're reducing your reactive oxygen species, which, when you talk about fluorescence, often results in bleaching. Um, and again, if your molecules go dark, you're not going to really see them. So the very basis of turf is you have to be able to visualize your molecule. Right. Um, Yeah. So if we try and go back to this estate metaphor in the middle of the ocean, would would using this microscopy technique be somewhat similar to, you know, finding out a blueprint for your massive estate that tells you where the doorways are, where the hinges and the plumbing and how things are connected? Is that kind of how you begin to build what this protein looks like through microscopy, like the actual structure of this? If you want to put in that manner correct, um, my my goal in, um, of what I wanted to get across from putting it in that manner is the idea of that this is a very large protein and that it's difficult to get to, which, again, um, as a result, when you do go to try to um, express it to get enough to study, You'd get very little return, which you get, which is a benefit of turf, is because you can take that tiny amount that you do get, and still be able to study it because this technique requires very, very, very low concentrations. One other thing that I wanted to touch on was that previous research had utilized shorter fragments mm-hmm. of this very large protein, absolutely, and those fragments are soluble in maybe. A, they're um, water soluble, mm-hmm. and so that has been advantageous for f- incremental um, discovery about what odoferlin does. But are there oh, any? Sh- that, sorry, go ahead. yeah, no. There's no. So studying in fragments has been very crucial to understanding its basic function. However, um, 
we all kind of know that when you study something in isolation, you don't always, you're not always able to recapitulate its um, true activity. Um, and so that's what makes my graduate work unique is the fact that um, we take this 230 kilodalton protein and I am able to characterize 215 kilodaltons. So the only fraction I don't look at is the transmembrane domain. Um, and so like, we can kind of we, we can get a fuller picture of what it's actually doing. Now, of course, it would be really interesting to include the transmembrane domain in these studies because, again, with that domain, it's, it's inserts into a membrane, so you go from something that's going from a 3D space to a 2D space. Now, we kind of avoid that by, again, tethering it to a surface, but, again, still have it being tethered to a surface and it's inserted to a membrane. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So where you would expect the protein to be embedded into the cell membrane, it's actually attached to the surface of your cover slip? Yes, yes. And that's, that's how you're able to immobilize it? Yes. Very cool. I, I wonder if it'll be helpful to give a 30,000-foot view of the steps involved in order for you to get to this cover slip and the actual microscopy uh, that, that you do. Yes. Uh, so... Um, the first steps is the functionalization of your cover slip. So that's what's going to allow you to um, view, view your protein under the turf microscope. Um, and that usually takes – it's a two-day process. Um, and that usually – it's really quite fun. involves the use of piranha, which is a very um, caustic chemical, if I may say so myself. Uh, your idea of fun is different than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hydrogen peroxide and um, – what is it? Sulfuric Sulfuric acid? Yeah. Yes, hydrogen peroxide sulfuric acid. I've heard of a uh, graduate student um, accidentally mixing hydrogen peroxide and I think it was either I think hydrochloric acid. Oh, no. And like that I, I apparently makes an extremely caustic solution as well that did the job. But he was like, it was changing different colors and I was really confused. Oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, geez. <laughs> um, Must have been the chlorine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was nuts. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then from there, after you clean them to remove any traces of organics. Um, you start then by um, just kind of layering it um, till eventually you get to a peg layer. And that's kind of, um, I would say, like the baseline layer. And within these peg molecules are biotinylated peg molecules. So, and the, um, sorry, what can you tell us what peg is? What is that utilized for? Um, so peg is just a, um, it's a pretty much an inert polymer. And that's... Um, it's basically used as a transition um, from, um, I guess I would say, um, maybe more harsher chemicals that aren't necessarily biologically compatible to a molecule that can be um, attached to proteins. So the PEG is what contains the biotin, and the biotin is what we use to attach to our antibody with the avidins. The biotin and avidin are very strong binding partners. And that um, biotinylated antibody is then used to capture our protein of interest. So basically just allows you to form those connections yes. between the different molecules. Okay. Yeah. So like from a clean cover, strip that, cover slip that's been completely stripped, essentially, you use um, potassium hydroxide, silanes, and then the peg biotin layer, and then your protein. So it's, you're basically just like layering these chemicals until they become more and more biologically compat compatible. And then is this two days worth of work so far? It is, <laughs> yes. My goodness, that's yeah. a busy two days. And it's a lot of rinsing, and then, like you have these like individual cover slips, and you have to individually rinse all of them. And because some of the chemicals do not react well with water, you have to dry everything individually with 
nitrogen. It becomes very time-consuming. And, of course, cover slopes are fragile, so you spend all this time and energy functionalizing them. And then, you know, sometimes they chip, sometimes they break, and you know, <laughs> sometimes they're tears, you know. <laughs> so, so the next step is the protein. Um, well, I shouldn't say next step as this is, as this, this is not something that goes on um, back to back. It's usually simultaneous. Um, but your protein generally is about five to six days to get it work, getting in working order. Um, one of the benefits, again, with turf is um, generally you can skip the purification step. So that saves you about a day. And you can freeze down your fractions. So even though this is maybe six day, five to six days worth of work, um, if you express enough protein, then you can have protein. Excuse me, protein for months. Um, the turf assays themselves, depending on what you're doing, is about one to three days. And then data analysis is about one to three days. So, you know, a short assay or a short process would be maybe a week to two weeks um, for a turnaround. And this assumes that everything works out perfectly. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and your first couple months, did everything work out perfectly? Maybe not all at once. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually it worked out. Um, yeah, so, you know, one of the big things about turf is kind of getting comfortable with the microscope and the program and knowing what you're looking for. Um, so that's a kind of a big thing, having controls in place to know what things should look like when they're working right. So I know that um, at one point Lillian asked, like, what exactly, how do you know what you're looking at? <laughs> under Like, how do you know that you're looking at an actual molecule? And... Um, Maybe from a um, 30,000 foot view standpoint, I guess, um, you can kind of uh, use the analogy of a lot what um, Judge Potter Stewart said back in the 1960s to describe what um, porn was. And that's like in a nutshell. I can't give a definition, but I know it when I see it. And that's a lot. Of, <laughs> that's a lot. When we look at the molecules on a turf. We're like, I know it when I see it. Um, but <laughs> from a more tangible like perspective... That. Um, one of the ways you know you're looking at molecules is that they bleach. So mm -hmm. often when turf experiments are working, we use um, um, an O2 scavenging system, which prevents um, pre-bleaching, which is just the molecule going into a dark state permanently. Um, but on turf, you often want to be able to know you're looking at molecules and not necessarily imperfections in your um, functionalization. Um, so, so that would be just the, the actual surface of the cover slip. Gets darker okay. over time, yeah. So the molecules are going to get darker. The dirt's going to just essentially stay fluorescing. Um, your molecules are also, they represent small puncta depending, like some people say they microtubules, and then, of course, you expect like a long tube occurring across your cover slip. But for individual molecules, in my experience, they show up as just small little dots. Um, so kind of looking for small uniform dots is another clue that you're looking at what you want to see. And they obviously, because they are fluorophores, they should only show up under certain filter settings and certain illumination settings. So if you have GFP and you're, you know, you're looking at emission between, say, 500 and 530, you should see puncta. Or if you change your emission filter to, say, you know, IR or, you know, UV um, spectra, then if you see something, then it's obviously probably not your protein. It's likely um, dirt. So there are a few... Yeah. So one thing I want to clarify, so GFP is how you actually visualize the fluorescence. Um, GFP is one of the molecules, one of my um, control molecules that I okay. use to make sure that at least I've managed to make functional cover slips and put them on, um, put them on the microscopes. 
sometimes the lasers um, decide not to work too. That's that's my one gripe. I love our Zeiss microscope, but seriously, Zeiss, something needs to be done with your programs in. <laughs> like you'll say, activate this laser, and the program's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. But then you'll look into the microscope, and there will be no laser <laughs> visible. And it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, so there are a lot of sort of there are a lot of variables that go into everything just working just right. Yes, absolutely. And it all it takes is just one small thing for it not to work out. Yes, yes. I mean, I guess the benefit is you know very quickly when it's not working because you don't really mm-hmm. see much of anything on the screen. Okay. Um, <laughs> but that's I would say that's the only benefit of things not working yeah. is that you don't really waste a lot of time um, trying to figure out that it's not working. Yeah. So this sounds like a pretty slow and methodical but incremental process of you know, figuring out what works, whether it's, you know, stage one or stage seven, whether you're tweaking this polarization technique or not. And I'd like to know, I don't imagine you thought you would do this your, when you were younger. So what were the incremental steps you took in your early life to get you where you are now? Um, I'll tell you this, they were not calculated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of just getting into science, I have always had an interest in that. Um, I, my first my first memory of wanting to be a scientist, I remember um, being interested in outer space. You know, I wanted to be an, an aeronautical engineer, an aerospace engineer. Um, and then from there, I switched to medicine. I was interested in becoming a doctor. You know, I don't really know what catalyzed that switch, but um, based off um, kind of learning more about myself, I feel like a lot of that was I didn't see a lot of black aerospace aeronautical engineers but I saw a lot of black doctors and so I was like well you know maybe that's something I can do I can be a doctor um and I did my undergraduate work at University of Missouri and um of course when you kind of go on the website and you're like you know what does it take to get into medical school they're like research volunteering shadowing Joining the pre-med society, you know, and I did all these things and I absolutely hated everything about the process. Yeah, I was miserable. The only thing I looked forward to was lab work. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, you know, I talked to my mom about it because like it was going into my junior year. I'm like, my grades aren't that hot. Definitely haven't done the shadowing. Not too big on the volunteering. You probably weren't excited to do all the I volunteering. Was, no, gosh, no, I was. It was like it was more of a burden than anything. And, you know, my mom was like, well, you seem to really like research, do that. And although I know that she didn't know that meant go to graduate school, I had an undergraduate research advisor that essentially explained to me that if you want to be a scientist, you go to graduate school. And that's <laughs> that's how I ended up here. Um, now, if you had asked me as an undergraduate going into graduate school, if I ever thought I would study single molecule biophysics, <laughs> again, I would like I would have laughed in your face and walked away. Uh, but yet here I am. <laughs> um, so I'd like to yeah. take a step back. It sounds like your mom was really percep- perceptive in knowing that you really enjoyed lab work. Yes. Even though you probably had a difficult time explaining what that was. Yeah. So how like how did that advice from your mom? Did that would that turn a switch of oh why don't I just do lab work stuff or was it like mom you don't know what lab work takes I got to do this and that like was there resistance to that idea there or? wasn't resistance mainly because I had already ex- experienced the fact that um, lab work often involves a lot of failure and that didn't necessarily turn me off but 
it was it's you know you have to fail to learn you know um so i mean that didn't really bother me um so yeah, I was like, I think that was one of the few times in my life where my mom told me something I did not argue with her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your mom really appreciates that. Yeah, you know, growing up, getting out on your own, you kind of learn to appreciate your parents. Yeah. Like the things that you hate most about them as teenagers, when you kind of you're in a young adult, get into the world, you're like, wow, my parents they were they may they may have been right about a few few things. <laughs> it's funny how you reach that realization. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, so what were you studying at University of Missouri? I was studying biochemistry, and I was in the Department of um, the College of Agriculture, Food, and Natural Resources. So it was an agricultural biochemistry degree. And I was very close to actually not even studying biochemistry despite having an interest in it. Um, when I So I was a transfer student. I did my first two years at a community college in Arizona. And um, during that time, I had a, a mentor um, and I was telling her about, you know, me moving to Missouri and transferring, and I was trying to pick a major. And um, I told her, you know, I was thinking about this biochem degree, but it's ag biochem. I don't know what that means. It does definitely doesn't sound relevant to medicine. So I might just take the pre-med route. And she looked at me, and she's like, first of all, you don't want to get a pre-med a degree that says pre-med because if you don't get into med school, you're sitting there with kind of a useless degree. Like it's not entirely – doesn't show you focus on anything. Um, and then she said, secondly, biochemistry is biochemistry is biochemistry. It doesn't matter if it's happening a plant or a human, if you know the basics. If you, if you still decide you want to go into medicine, you're going to be, you know, well off to do so. Mm. Um, so that's how I kind of got into the University of Missouri. I totally forgot what your qu- original question was. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember either, but okay. I think what you're, what you're saying really highlights the importance of having access to mentors that are really looking out for you mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. Yes. You're, yeah. if, in order to have a good mentor, they have to have a vested interest in your success. Mm-hmm. And yes, and it right. sounds like you found that in, your, in the different schools that you were at. You were able to find that. Yes. Um, I feel like um, left to my own devices, I would certainly not even be here. Um, my ment- my, I was lucky in the fact that I found decent mentors. And it wasn't intentional. I don't know what led me to these people. I don't know what led these people to see something in me, but I'm glad that I um, took them up on their offers of maybe they, they maybe they didn't formally ask me to be you know their mentor or their mentees, but still I'm glad I didn't um, shy away from learning what I could and asking questions and um, but yeah I I think my mentors I not no, I think I know my mentors have played um, a huge role in my in my success as a graduate student. Absolutely. So when you were at University of Missouri, what what catalyzed your decision to come to OSU? Um, well, it had a lot to do with my mentor and um, my last-minute planning. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I was um, a very young college graduate, and um, I wasn't really looking forward to moving away from home. I was only child, homeschooled. Like, I've never been away from my mom for an extended period of time. So I was like, well, I'll just stay at University of Missouri. I knew I didn't have a huge interest in staying in the agricultural biochem department, but I was interested in their medical pharmacology and physiology. Um, so I um, found a couple professors in that department. Actually, not, I'm not going to lie. I found a professor in that department that I was interested in working with, and I pursued that with all of my effort. I took a um, four-credit independent research course in which I you know, spent a term doing a literature review about 
the work he did in his lab and, you know, what projects I could take on as a potential graduate student. This is all like the volunteering back end of things, uh, trying to get your foot in the yeah. door. Yeah, and- yeah, but that's what I tell you to do. Well, get your foot in the door, volunteer your time, blah, 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 which is all sound advice. The advice that I didn't get was the fact that people can want you in their lab, but if they don't have the money to have you in their lab, you're not going to get in their lab. And I failed to have that money talk. So I applied, and when it came time to you know announce acceptance, I was not given a spot because I only had interest in one person, and that person didn't have funding. Um, this might be a, a good time to describe a little bit yeah. more of what this means for graduate school as a whole, because while this happened in Missouri, this is pretty standard practice yeah. for pretty much any STEM oh, absolutely. education. Yeah. yeah. So let's explore this a little bit more first step in applying to graduate school is you have to find an advisor that has your, the same interest as you, that you ideally will will work well with, that you like their research. But the second part of that is that they have to have funding available yeah. for you as a student. It's like an awkward high school dance. <laughs> like trying to find, it is like trying to find an advisor. Like I kind of want you to be my advisor, but I also like don't want to commit entirely to you. And, but because at the end of the day, you're like, I'm just a grad student trying to earn this degree. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I understand the need to specialize, but sometimes it's good to generalize. But you can't say that because yeah. they're like, oh, this person is interested. And it's it's a very tricky game to play. You don't really know what to say until you actually get in there and talk to the advisor and kind of figure out where their angle is. And sometimes it's difficult to have these conversations at a point when you're really still pretty clueless about the whole process. It's overwhelming. I'm like, you're sitting there trying to apply, trying to figure out how the finances are going to work, trying to find someone to live, trying to figure out, like, project, like, okay, I'm in grad school, but I've heard of these terrible things called prelims. What does that entail? I'm already terrified of them, even though I'm three years out from it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just so many things, you know, that have to fall into place. At the exact moment, and yeah, sometimes it's hard to keep track of all those moving pieces. And uh, but I would say that if you do see grad school in your future, don't be afraid to have that talk. It's awkward because you know, growing up, you're always told you know, don't discuss finances, yeah. but you need to flat out ask them because sometimes like they'll be, they'll be so excited to share the research, which that's what professors do. They they talk about the research, they can share it in an exciting way, and they sometimes forget the the thing that matters most from the perspective of a grad student that is. How am I going to support myself while working for you in this degree, you know? Um, So, yeah, definitely don't be afraid. Ask him, where is your funding going to be during fall of 20 blah, 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 Mm -hmm. when I plan to enroll? Right. And, you know, if if anything, the professor could say, all right, look, I don't have funding for this quarter, but apply again next year and then maybe it can happen. So that's option one. Option two is a lot of universities will often have um, scholarships. Or fellowships, which mm-hmm. means you know they allow X many per department, so that even though the professor doesn't have funding today, uh, he or she might be able to spring funding together three uh, or for your second and third year, and so on. Absolutely. But, but always ask about that mm-hmm. two-year, three-year, four-year funding question, and then longer if you're doing a PhD. Absolutely. I mean, one benefit of the BB department, the biochemistry, biophysics, is that we do rotations, and so for the first year of graduate school, you're supported by the department and you um, you teach. So coming to grad school, it's nice to have teaching experience. Um, that's not always something you can get as an undergraduate or even if you got an undergraduate and then decided to work for a few years or something and you come back as a non-traditional student, um, 
it's it's uh, you, you may not have the the teaching skills that are going to help you succeed. Um, but uh, like I said, with the BB department, any PhD student they take, um, they make sure that if the if their major professor loses funding, they can supplement their income by teaching. But not all departments have that safety net, you know. Um, so with, with graduate school, you learn, unfortunately, sometimes too late that it's not about your research. Like your research, honestly, is a very small piece of the pie. Um, yeah. And that gets to a point I want to ask you about, which is what were you involved in outside of your research that enriched your graduate school experience? Um, outreach. Um, for me, that that definitely made grad school worthwhile. Um, at a very young age, my mom um, instilled in me the necessity for, like, you know, you're responsible as a citizen to make the world a better place. If if not you, then who? So I've always learned, you know, I grew up volunteering, giving back. Um, when I was, well, old was I? I think I was 14 or 15. I won a Volunteer of the Year award from um, one of the school districts in Arizona because every day after my classes, I would come and, you know, volunteer with the third or fourth grade class. And I enjoyed it. And so... Um, <clears throat> My time here, I've I spent um, get, being involved in national and local organizations that promote um, outreach in higher education. So that includes um, OSU SACNAS, um, Society for the Advancements of Chicano, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. Um, OSU BGSA, which is the Black Graduate Student Association. Um, I'm also involved with them as a na- on a national level. I'm the Western Region rep- Representative for that organization. Um, I'm the education chair for the Corvallis Area NAACP. Um, I'm all, I've also been appointed by the our Corvallis Mayor, Biff Traber, to serve on the King Legacy Advisory Board. And I'm also involved with the Oregon Assembly for Black Affairs. So I keep, I keep myself pretty busy outside of yeah. graduate work. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah, talking about dropping the new shoes of, you know, all the things you're involved in. So there's, there's this constant theme that you had just described of, you know, your mom said, you need to, you know, better the world, you know, yeah. constant improvements. And with your research, I mean, there's probably going to be, you know, researchers next year, two years from now that are much better able to understand the protein, which means, you know, people can, might be able to be cured from, you know, this unfortunate disease that, that causes them to go deaf. And you just finished your PhD, which is pretty lucky that, or congratulations, first Thank of you. all. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And I'd, I'd like to know, you know, how do you feel now that you finish your PhD yet, the underlying theme that you've constantly lived of, I'm going to keep making this place better. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the things that um, my therapist gets on me about a lot. She's like, you know, you don't take time to celebrate your success. And like getting through my PhD, like even like a few hours after I finished, I was sulking because of a dissenting vote that I had. And then like, I don't even feel like I've really had time to celebrate my success because I'm already thinking of like the next things I have to do. Like, I think on Wednesday I'm sitting on a climate panel, um, so I need to. I'm going to spend my next couple of days brushing up on climate change. So I'll be representing the NAACP with that. Um, we're having Youth Voices of Diversity Writing Festival on MLK Day. It's like I have all these events that I'm doing. I don't really have time to like decompress and be like, oh, this was such a such a great experience. Like I'm always, you know, once I once I meet one milestone, I'm ready to jump over the next three hurdles to meet to meet the next milestone. It's so- funny because <laughs> I think that I. 
a PhD itself selects for a certain type of person. Exactly. Who is exactly yeah, that self, that self drive, that motivation. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's not that I'm not happy or excited, but it's just like I don't have time. Yeah. To like enjoy this, or I shouldn't say enjoy it, but but dwell in it right. because I have so many other things that I have to get done and I want to get done. Yeah. So on that note, aside from, you know, putting all of your research into journal publications, like your advisor wants you to, like all of our advisors want us to aside from that, put that on the back burner future you to worry about. I'm curious, what are your next endeavors now? Like what's an IG, an ideal job for you now that you have a PhD in mind? I'm in glad you mentioned that. If any university administrators are listening, Hopefully, you're listening to your next director of the DCE. Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah. So, what is DCE? Uh, so, that's Diversity and Culture Engagement. Okay. Um, they oversee all the cultural centers on campus, and they um, they're essentially a hub for um, increasing diversity and inclusion on OSU campus. Um, I like the idea of the community outreach aspect of it, as well as being able to interact with underrepresented groups on campus. Um, one of the things I feel like as a as a as a student, um, you kind of in this in this um, state where you're like you're told to go to college, and from college you're supposed to get a job, and from getting a job, you're supposed to use that money to support yourself, and you're you're just so caught up in the thick of things that you forget you have a civic responsibility to make the world a better place. And the DCE is a perfect catalyst um, to be able to reach out to not only the underrepresented students, but also the community and show them um, how to make the world a better place. And that's through um, making sure you understand the, the politics and the practice, you know. And then from there, you can make a change, you know. You can be the change that you want to see in the world, so... Well, Nicole, I have no doubt that you will be yeah. the change that we see in this world. And we are beginning to run out of time. And uh, Lily, is there anything else yeah. before we get to our traditions? I don't think so. But thank you so much for sharing your experience. It's really um, valuable and interesting for people to hear about. Thank you. Thank you. I think if I were to give one piece of parting advice, it would be to get a mentor and not just a mentor, more than one mentor. Um, and in doing so, you want to be able to identify something that you like about them. Um, my mom would always tell me, you know, birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> and so if you hang around successful people enough, something is eventually going to rub off on you, especially if you want it to rub off on you. And so, yeah, find yourself a bunch of different mentors and be like a sponge. Absorb what you can. I love it. Nice. And our second tradition that we have is we ask you for a song. So what song did you choose and why? I chose The Show Goes On by Lupe Fiasco. Um, it's a song that I really like. Um, it's not necessarily my first choice, but it's my first choice that's acceptable to play on air. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I like the message. Um, it definitely, it's a song about achieving and overcoming no matter no matter what you've been through or what you're born with. It just... And it gives her the message that, you know, it doesn't matter what you're born with, but you can, it's, it's on you if you don't decide to make a change. So, I like it. Nice. Well, Nicole, thank you so much. You were very yeah. gracious with your time. And Absolutely. we wish you all the best with, uh, as a newly minted PhD yes. from Oregon State. Thank yes. you. Congratulations. Thank you. Lay. Zuh. Yeah. 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 Yeah.